You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, here for another edition of the FemSquire series. And joining me today is Elizabeth Lippi. She has quite a resume. She is the one of the founders and a partner at Fairley and Lippy PC, a criminal defense and personal injury firm in the suburbs of Philadelphia. She is also the founder and executive director of Trial Advocacy Consulting and Training, LLC, also known as TACT. And if that's not enough, her third job is the director of trial advocacy at Temple University, James E. Beasley School of Law. Welcome, Elizabeth. Well, thank you for having me, Christina. Now that you say it out loud, I'm tired myself just hearing those three hats that I wear. But yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this podcast. Thank you for saying yes. And I really can't believe that you have all of those three jobs. That can't be real. (laughs) And you have kids. Well, it's not like I'm a hundred percent at any, I mean, my full-time job is with Temple currently. So that's kind of my like number one go-to. Um, I've been building up the business tact in the last couple of years, and it kind of grew at a crazy rate when COVID hit, because part of what I do is offer technology services in the courtroom. And then my law partner is a saint and is fine with me living in a different state and not being there all the time. And so I, I handle most of my law firm's appeal work as you know, can probably be done anywhere, even on a beach I've been known to do. So it's not like I'm spending 110% at each of those, but when I am working in any of those positions, I do give it my all. So which job did you have first? Was it the law firm? That's that came first. And then I was with American law school in DC for about 10 years. So I still live in Northern Virginia and I left the American gig and I got the temple position in Philly and I'm still in Northern Virginia. So thank you COVID for letting me be in two places at one time. Yeah, COVID has, um, there's been a lot of good things, I think, that came out of COVID. Yeah, but I'm ready for it to be done, for sure. Like, let's put that in the past and move on with COVID. Yeah, I do hope something stick, though. Like, I think a lot of the things that we've learned to do with technology and people who maybe before were not predisposed to technology now have had to learn it just as a matter of necessity. And I hope we keep that going, especially in the court system. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, it's almost like the Zoom screen, right, has turned every courtroom into a high-tech courtroom. Technology and catching up with technology has been a huge benefit to COVID. Um, Although I wish that I could walk around with, as we were talking about, touch up my screen and touch up my view in person after COVID. Could we keep that? Yeah, well, uh, to our audience, we were joking before we actually started recording that it's kind of nice to not have to do as much prep when you have to do a podcast or something like that, because you really only have to be dressed from the waist up. I mean, let's be honest, right? It's awesome. So I want to go through your resume a little bit here and there. We'll give the highlights. So you had the law firm. I mean, clearly you, your passion, it seems, is trial advocacy. Yes. So when you say trial advocacy, do you mean going to court and, you know, being the Matlock guy who's, you know, pleading his case and cross-examining witnesses and doing summations? Or 
what we sometimes forget about trial advocacy is also the beginning and discovery and prepping for the trial. So I'm much more the Matlock guy in the courtroom, and that's mostly what I teach, although obviously you can't even get to that point if you don't excel in the beginning stuff, right? If you don't know how to do the discovery, if you don't, can't take a deposition, if you don't know what you're doing leading up to that. However, most of the skills that I've always taught and been taught um, deal with once you're in the courtroom and doing the opening statement, voir of the jury, making sure that your examination of the witnesses resonate with your fact finder, with the jury, and, you know, killing it in closing argument. So I've, I was benefited by a really awesome mentor when I went to law school and he really motivated me to do it. So I immediately started teaching trial ad after I graduated. I was honored to do so at Temple. And then after Temple, I moved to DC and that's when I started at American and now I'm back home at Temple. So um, what are you, what do you think are some of the highlights of what you teach your students and maybe what you would want attorneys that are out there doing it, what would you want them to pay attention to? So it's hard, I think, especially for young lawyers and especially for young female lawyers to kind of own your voice and to know who you are. And I just want to give a real quick story, if you don't mind me sharing this one. So I was in law school and I had in my mind a vision of what an attorney would look like, right? I thought I had to have my hair pulled back and wear glasses and be super conservative everything I'm not, right? I'm not comfortable without makeup on. I'm not comfortable with my glasses on. I prefer messy hair down and super casual, um, sometimes a little funky clothing. So I try out for trial team in law school and I'm looking so conservative, so uncomfortable, so rigid. And I get called back for the second round. And the professor who was in charge, who was my mentor, actually had a female professor speak to me before the second round. And she was like, I see how you're dressed right now. And like, you seem really kind of casual and your hair's down and you're not wearing glasses. So like, was that a thing for the courtroom? And I was like, I thought that's how I was supposed to look. And that was the first time I really had a run in with the idea of, oh, so if I'm more authentic and unique in myself, I'm going to be much more persuasive in the courtroom. And so that was just one small example, candidly, of what's been almost a 20 year, I mean, I'm in denial that I've almost practiced in 20 years, but almost a 20 year exploration and knowledge and eye-opening experiences to learn that the more I am true to myself, even in the courtroom and don't turn into somebody else, somebody that I'm not, the more successful I'm going to be. That's great advice. And unfortunately we, I think as women, especially we learn that maybe too late in life because it really applies to everything. It applies to relationships and work and everything in your personal life. At least I have found that to be true. So I think that's great advice. I hope that your law students are listening to that. And I feel like in this day and age too, it's especially for women, it's not quite as rigid, right? Like when you talk to I hate to say older attorneys, but season, we'll call them seasoned attorneys. Seasons, yes. Cause I'm, I'm part of that older crew now. Well, I mean, you know, the, there's people older than us, you know, there are. And the, I love to hear their stories about what it was like when the climate was different because it has changed. Like think about when RBG was practicing law. I mean, wow, it was different. And I'll hear women say, well, you had to wear pantyhose and you had to wear a skirt suit. You could not wear a pantsuit and you just had to behave a certain way. And it really has changed. So we do have the flexibility to be more authentic. 
No, and I have to say thank you to the millennials because I feel like they forged the way for lack of pantyhose in the courtroom. <laughs> I'm yeah. serious. I was wearing them up until 10 years ago in the courtroom. And now I'm like, oh my God, it's 100 degrees out. Who wants to wear pantyhose? Honestly, who's wearing pantyhose anymore? Why? <sighs> I don't know. But I still make my law students do it. Isn't that like practice what I preach? No. You do? What do you mean you make them? You tell them they have to wear pantyhose? Well, back in the day when we were actually in person for some of these competitions against other law schools, right? So the, the teams would prepare their case and they would try against other law schools and trial competitions. And I make them wear their pantyhose. How could you really tell? I mean, from across the room, you can't really tell if they're wearing pantyhose. No, no. I mean, I I can just, I guess, see up close. I don't know. My thought also, so this is probably contrary to what I just said, is that I also don't want to distract anything from my advocacy, right? So I don't dress crazy in a courtroom. I don't want your audience to think I'm a wild child. I am sometimes, but not in the courtroom. Um, and so I guess with my students, if there's that old school mentality sitting there and, and scoring their competition or even, even in a real jury trial, right? If there's an old school mentality sitting there on the jury, I don't want somebody holding it against my client just because I'm not wearing pantyhose for God's sakes, right? So I guess that's where my mind is, um, which like I said, is kind of contrary to like be you, but I still think you can be you in pantyhose maybe. Yes, be you and be you in pantyhose. I like that. Um, you know what's I just realized too is I doing family law, I don't have jury trials. So I think my considerations are different. I if I had jury trials, I would have to be mindful of who's on the jury and what are they thinking and how does this affect my client and do I have to fit a certain mold? So I think that's actually a really important distinction to make. For sure. And you have to know your audience. Yes. And so you doing criminal defense and personal injury, or at least you did do that, right? I still do. It's just been a couple of years since I've tried a jury trial, which I think everybody can say at this point post COVID. Was it because of COVID or was it just because of your career path? So a little bit of both. I, I have this amazing situation right now. Like I said, my law partner, Steve Fairley is a little bit of a saint, but if we get a case where I can cherry pick it and try it, and I'll go cherry pick that trial and I'll go take it to trial. Um, so it's been about three or four years since I've had my last jury trial, but it's not because I don't want to. It's just, you know, we get to cherry pick and see what Liz Libby gets to go take to, to trial. Do you miss it? Oh, yeah. 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 So I moved to Northern Virginia kicking and screaming. My husband and I were dating at the time um, when I first met him on a jury. That's another story if you want to take notes for that one. So he had, was he a juror? (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. We got to get, we got to get to that story. Okay. I'm sorry. Go on. Continue. Uh, Yeah. It's a good story. So um, he moved down here and before I even started dating him, he had agreed with his ex-wife that when the kids started um, kindergarten, that he would move to Northern Virginia because in preschool, they were doing a week in Philadelphia, a week in Northern Virginia. And that's a lot easier to do, obviously when they're not starting real school or kindergarten. Um, so, you know, I had no choice and I had to come to Northern Virginia. So I came down here kicking and screaming because I wanted to stay in my practice and I never wanted to leave my, my little bubble. You were comfortable there. Yes. And I do miss it. So what did you really love about it? Like t- go through it with us. You know, when you go into the courtroom, what is it that you're feeling? Yeah. I don't know about you when you do your family law cases, but the adrenaline right? So first of all, I ended up in this niche criminal defense setting. So I do a lot of sexual assault cases. I do a lot of 
child sexual assault cases, which are very difficult to handle, I think both from the prosecution and the defense, because it's such an emotionally high charged case, right? Um, but what I loved about those cases in particular, not only do I think most women actually shy away from them and it put me in a, in a very unique position to succeed, but I also think because a lot of them are he said, she said, and it happens behind closed doors with only two people really knowing what happened is that we get to help create the narrative that the jury hears and that the jury believes. So it's different than like a drug case, right? If I'm, if I'm trying a possession with intent to distribute and there's a video footage of my client giving a bag of heroin to somebody, that's not as exciting. It's like, oh uh, yeah, it happens, but right? Like you can't really create a good narrative and a good believable story behind that. Whereas in those cases, as I mean, terribly emotional as they are and, and sometimes very tragic, it was fun. I guess fun's not the right word when talking about cases like that, but like interesting and always unique to be able to approach each case differently and to be able to find what is going to resonate with the jury. Well, I do, I do know people that do criminal law and they say, women will say, I'm not comfortable doing sex crimes because they feel like they're defending a perpetrator of violence. So sure. did you ever look at it in those terms? Did, how did you look at it? Like, how did you maybe avoid those feelings? Did you those ever thoughts. make any personal assessment whether somebody was guilty or not? So unless they actually admit to something, right? It, you never know what happened. And so, you know, I, when my clients tell me what happened or their version of events, Obviously, I can't have a client go on the stand and perjure themselves. So I'm like, you know, before you tell me everything, I want you to be aware that if you intend to testify, if it does go to trial down the road, you cannot testify inconsistently with what you're telling me. So that being said, why don't you explain to me your version of events and what happened, right? So I've never actually gone to a jury trial defending anybody who has admitted guilt. So by the time I'm in trial, I also believe in their innocence and they have so much so much at stake in those types of cases that, you know, probably 90% of the time I'm mitigating damages and making sure that they get a good sentence or a good plea. If they are willing and want to go to a jury trial, the chances are, or at least this is maybe how I convince myself to not have the feelings you just referenced, chances are they are innocent or at least not guilty of what they've been charged with, right? Now, that being said, I have had situations, I had one particular case where I got a not guilty of rape of a child. And then during he was, he pled guilty. There were two charges against this particular client, pled guilty to one set, went to trial on the other, found not guilty of that. And then during the sex offender treatment for that other set for which he pled guilty during one of the um, polygraph exams that was required during sex offender treatment, he admitted to the wrong, yeah, to the wrongdoing of the case that I got a not guilty for. So that mm. caused many, many, many sleepless nights. Oh, yeah. So did that kind of turn you off to the practice after that? No, no. I think all of those types of, it didn't happen often, right? That, that was a very unique, um, thankfully situation, but I think what it does is it hardens you. And that's, it's, it's probably sad to say out loud, but there's definitely a certain aspect of what we do that we have to distance ourselves from our clients. So, and I actually think you gain more credibility too with the jury. Like I'm not speaking, I am not my client. I am helping provide my client a voice in the courtroom. 
And so if I cannot distance myself a little bit emotionally, and I do think that men have a much easier time compartmentalizing than we do as women, sorry to generalize like that. Um, but I, I do think that they are much more like it's in a box, it's over here. And so I have to put a client in a box and put them over here. So it didn't discourage me at all. Um, do I feel like the system might've failed in that particular case? Sure. But it wasn't my job to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, do you agree that it's better that some guilty people go free than innocent people end up in jail for something they didn't do? I very much feel that way. And so I, you know, I graduated law school, super idealistic thinking that, you know, the judicial system is not problematic, that it's perfect, that there's this whole balancing system. And I got to say, it, it really depends on the prosecutor, depends on the judge, it depends on so many things. And it's hard to say whether somebody's truly guilty of something or not. Unless like I, the example I gave before, if you have a video footage of it, that's one thing. But otherwise, it's mostly circumstantial evidence that convicts people. And it's terrifying. There's so many people that are wrongly convicted. The amount of time that you've been doing this type of work, have you seen anything trending in terms of how the judicial system approaches sex crimes? Like, for instance, you know, it used to be, well, did you try to stop them? Did you try to keep your legs closed? What were you wearing? Things like that. I feel like we have moved away from that. For sure. To some degree. Well, and I actually think we moved too far away from that in in many degrees. Okay. So I agree that there should not be victim bashing. And in the cases that I win, typically I'm not victim bashing. I actually build the victim up. So so for example, when I'm dealing with teenaged um, complainants, witnesses that are claiming that there was sexual abuse. Many times it's years later that they come forward. And, you know, these kids, these kids nowadays, see, I'm old, you know, they're dealing with different pressures than you and I had to deal with. Like, thank God I didn't have social media in college and high school. And I didn't get to compare myself to other kids from other schools. Like only got to have that insecurity in my own school, right? Like my own little bubbles, you know, like bubbles. Um, but these, these teenagers nowadays that are kind of coming forward with some of these claims have so much extra pressure, right? And I don't victim bash. I don't blame them for having that extra pressure because I feel, feel like jurors are going to hate my client and hate me for that. But that being said, you know, the rules of evidence prevent me from doing that anyway. So there is the rape shield law and the rape shield law does not allow me to introduce any prior sexual conduct on the part of the victim, unless there's certain circumstances that apply as far as exceptions. I'm cool with that. What I hate as far as where the law has gone is how differently criminal defendants are, are treated. So, you know, here we are, we have an individual who's got these constitutional rights, presumed innocence, and yet there are, there are rules of evidence that allow prior conduct of the defendant to be admitted. Even if there's not a prior conviction, for example, if there's a prior accusation of sexual misconduct and this is a sexual case, that prior can come in. And so to me, I feel like the whole idea behind our judicial system is to judge people based on their conduct in that case, not what type of person they are, not what kind of character evidence that comes in. And so the way that the rules read that permit all of that prior bad conduct against the defendant in sex cases I think is a recipe for disaster and a recipe for wrongful convictions, but I don't know many legislators that are going to go on the floor 
and argue to get rid of that kind of rule of evidence, right? Like you're, you don't want to be that guy or girl that's in, in Congress saying, oh, I want to help sex offenders. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not that you want to help sex offenders, but you want to help individuals who are in our judicial system and you want it to be fair and treat them fairly. But at the same time, you want that to treat the victims fairly too. And it's interesting that you bring that up. I guess maybe that's your position as a criminal defense attorney. I was thinking more in terms of the victim and, you know, calling a woman a slut, which I can't even believe we still do that, but Uh it's still a thing. And I think we do as a society still judge women in that respect. Like for instance, you go on a date with somebody and you have a great time and you're drinking and he invites you up to his apartment or, you know, you invite him to up to your apartment and you go upstairs and, and then something happens, you know, maybe, maybe you start making out. I don't know if that's what they say, but that's what I, that's what my generation said. Necking, right? Oh, we're not that, that, before, that was before my generation. That was like the Brady Bunch generation. But then if there's a rape allegation, then the question becomes, well, why'd you go upstairs? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? Are we still doing that? Do you think we're yeah, still doing that? We're totally still doing that. And even though, you know, I think the, the Me Too movement helped us not do that. But I think we're absolutely 100% still doing that. So, you know, if you even look at like the Larry Nassar trial, or um, if you ever read or or saw anything about the Aziz Azari case, so he had gone on a date with a woman and they had what he believed to be consensual sex at the time. And then like weeks later, she texts him. She's like, I didn't consent. I think as my kids go off to college, literally this week, I'm going to have this conversation right now with you. It's terrifying because, you know, on college campuses, for example, that is happening still, right? Like you've got this situation where a man or a woman still believes that there is consent, but then because there's drinking involved, there is not true consent. Like there's websites out there. I don't know if you're aware of this, that actually have like contractual consensual relationships. Like you can have your boyfriend, like sign, you can sign the contract before you get wasted so that you can say, this is what I can say. No, it's wild. Um, okay. There's so much wrong with that, but no, I didn't know that that was a thing, but maybe it's also a good idea, right? Like, Hey, if I'm going to give consent, here's what I consent to. Here's what I don't consent to. I mean, it's crazy to think like you're kissing somebody and then you're going to like, Oh, let me get out the contract and sign the next line. Like, yes, it's okay for you to touch my boob now. No, no, I don't want, we can't go there. We can do this. We can't do that. Yeah. It Mm -hmm. takes the romance out of it. Right. For sure. But I will say that 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 judging is still happening. My favorite juror on a case like that is a woman because we are, I think, harsher on each other than we are on men for whatever reason. I hope that that changes in the future. Um, So yeah, I think that there's definitely still some judging going on as far as that mentality. So what do you have to really show in a court of law now? I know it's going to depend on the jurisdiction, but from your jurisdiction, what, what do you really have to show to get a rape conviction? Well, I mean, as with any criminal case, right, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody did all of the elements of the crime. So it depends on what they're charged with. Let's say it's like rape of an unconscious victim. So that happens frequently too with the dating in dorm rooms and the college rape situations is that somebody will be passed out and the defendant will have believed that the person was awake enough to consent, right? 
Um, so with that particular charge, gosh, I don't have my crimes code, so hopefully I'm not quoting this wrong. Uh, you would have to, you have to prove sexual intercourse while the individual was unconscious. And then there's a definition, I think, in Pennsylvania's crime code about what unconscious means. Um, so like incapable of giving consent. So even if they're murmuring, like throwing up and they're alive, right, that can still be considered unconscious. So each rape charge is going to have different elements. Um, if it's a straight rape, like it's just a you know hall, alleyway rape, then it would just be sexual intercourse, maybe by force. Um, so different elements for different charges. Okay. So there's actually a lot of different categories of rape then, which is something I, I wasn't even aware of. So the law really has evolved. Yes. I think evolved since like 15 years ago. Sure. Um, has it evolved enough? I'm not so sure. That's me honest with you. It's so hard to prove though. I mean, it's, it's so hard for any of us to judge what happened between two people In when they were right. When they were alone together and maybe they were drinking, maybe they weren't, maybe there was some miscommunication, maybe someone, you know, changed their mind or just had different intentions. And that wasn't communicated to the other person or they just missed the cues. You know, there's so much going on there between two people. Yeah. I've had conversations with my son to read the cues for sure. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you how many kids you have, if they're boys and girls and how old they are. Yeah. So I've got all the kids. Um, so as I mentioned before, my husband was married prior to me. And so he had two beautiful children that were twins, boy, girl from his first marriage. They are 18 now and heading off to college. And then he and I had bio twins. So also boy, girl, and they are six years old going into first grade. So my poor husband should be celebrating an empty nest. (laughs) And instead, we're going to go part two and we're starting all over again. Wow. But I, we're not bio majors, but the twin thing <laughs> that has to do with the mom, right? It has nothing to do with the dad. Okay. Supposedly, and not to be like a Debbie Downer on your podcast, but we even lost a set of twins. So I'm um, thinking if I'm going to blame anybody, I'm going to blame my husband on that one. Uh, well, we can blame him for that. But that's interesting that he had two different women that were carrying, you know, twins, whatever, whatever you were going, was going on there with the twins. Yes. That's we're very efficient. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. He must have some really good genes then because, you know, Darwinism yeah. and all that, but I we're not going to go there. If you dogs. want me to, we can rent them out. So, if anybody yeah. needs them. <laughs> so, so how does your experience with everything that we're talking about, how does that affect your parenting? Oof. So he's also an FBI agent. I don't know if I mentioned that. That is so, so cool. I, I everybody always says that, and they want to talk about his career more than mine. So, um, as a criminal defense attorney, married to an FBI agent, I can assure you have some very interesting dinner conversations. But it does influence my parenting, right? So we did not allow the big kids to get Instagram until they were like seventeen. And so they're like, oh, all my kids are doing, all my friends are doing. I was like, do that, right? Like, you're not missing out on anything. And what I've seen, though, candidly, is that my, my stepson, Justin, barely even touches his Instagram account. Like, I don't even think he cares about it, right? Libby occasionally posts some family pictures, unless they have a secret one I don't know about. Um, we just let them get Snapchat this past year, you know, just because we've seen firsthand what can happen criminally on both of those social media platforms. 
also with regard to going off to college, you know, having that conversation, you know, I've had the conversation with my stepdaughter, you know, have a buddy system when you go out, she probably hates hearing it because I'm not really hip and cool. Right. But, you know, if I don't say it, I would feel really guilty and upset, not just if something happened, Mm -hmm. but upset that I could have prevented it if I spoke up. So So what did you say? So to Libby, you know, I was just like, when you go out, when you go out and you get wasted, I mean, I'm not an idiot. You're 18. You're going off to college. Of course, you're going to get drunk on the weekends. Of course, you're going to go to parties, but don't ever walk home alone. You know, this might be stuff that every parent says anyway, but like, don't leave a party alone. You know, obviously don't take somebody's drink. If some dude is giving you a, a red solo cup, go with them to fill it up from the keg. You know, don't, when you're at a party, it's a huge frat party, whatever, make sure you use the buddy system. If there's no reason one of your girlfriends should leave without you and you need to make sure that you check up on them too, because you would feel really bad if something happened to them. So you also have to, you know, take turns. This is my night getting drunk. This is your night getting drunk so that not, you're not all all a hot mess at the same time so that you can kind of have your wits about you. And then with Justin, it's like, you know, I, make sure that he respects any woman that he dates and to not take advantage of people, um, especially when drinking, like your job is to help somebody not hurt them. And so by putting them into a situation where they feel compelled to have sex, for example, it's not going to benefit you in the long run. And it's certainly not going to benefit her. So just wait until the next day when you're sober and have that conversation, but help her, you know, if you see somebody sick or something, help not hurt. I like the way you, Post that it's not like, oh, you don't want to get in trouble and, you know, destroy your entire future. It's really more you you don't want to damage her or f- affect her future. Well, I don't want to teach them to be super selfish. I'm sure I've done my, my job and made them selfish. Um, but no, it's 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 much more about making sure that somebody else is OK. I like that. I like that emphasis there. Well, you're a good mom. Oh, I try. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm telling you when I brought my little ones home, I was just celebrating every day. They were still alive. It's like, cool. Sweet. No, right. Sometimes that that's a big win. That is like, we should all get up in the morning and I opened my eyes today. It's a good day. Yeah. Keeps things in perspective. Um, what about sexting? Because I've been hearing from younger people that I know that kids in high school now, and this wasn't a thing when we were in high school, yeah. but I never thought about it. That- well, I mean, I had a pager in high school, right? Like I didn't even have a cell phone. So it's not like I could sex if I wanted to. So I, I used to go through their phones. I haven't in years. And uh, candidly, um, Chris's ex-wife pays for the phone. So I don't even feel like comfortable going through them. It's not mine to monitor. Um, I'm sure it happens to some extent. I will say like, I got Libby, my stepdaughter got so pissed at me one time because she like showed me a shirtless picture of one of our neighbor's friends that he like put on Snapchat. And I told the neighbor's mom, I was like, I don't want to get your son in trouble. But like, if, if one of my kids do this and you don't tell me I'm going to kill you. So like, come over, I want to show you, let's have a glass of wine. Um, and so I showed the mom and she was like, so thankful that I told her. And then Libby got so pissed at me and she's like, I'm never telling you anything ever again. You got me in trouble. I was like, no, I saved him. Cause I don't want that poor kid at age 16 thinking it's okay to send like these half naked pictures around. Well, the thing that I'm hearing, and maybe you can talk about this a little more is that if a girl sends a nude picture of an underage girl sends a nude picture of herself to one of her classmates that that could be considered child pornography. It absolutely, on his phone. Is. It absolutely is. 
Do you that's know- the other thing too. So yeah. just, yeah, no, it's not a good idea. Um, and, and candidly, so an 18 year old, right. My kids graduated from high school at 18. If Justin had had intercourse with somebody who was 17, he could be charged, even though consensual, it could be charged with a, a multitude of different crimes, depending on the jurisdiction. So it's just all scary as all get out. And, and I think in the news, like you've probably read about cases where somebody gets a half nude picture or something from somebody who's underage and they're charged with child pornography. It's terrifying. Yeah, that really is terrifying. And they're kids, they're kids themselves. Can I tell you a funny story? That's yes. somewhat so, you know, we have a family computer and Justin at age 14, he's going to kill me, but I won't send him the link for this. So at age 14 on the family computer, like Google teenage boobs or something like something like, <laughs> and you know, with Google, if you're logged in, like any search on your computer is going to show up on your Google search history. So my husband, the FBI agent oh, no. is logged in and I like see his search history. And I was like, um, Chris, do we, do we need to talk? Like, why are you Googling teenage boobs? And he's like, oh my God, I have to have a conversation with Justin. Cause can you imagine like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, you guys are so hyper, you and your husband are so hyper aware because of what you both do for a living. Yes. And before we forget, we have to talk about (laughs) a story about how you met your husband. Cause I just have to hear this. So it was before my law firm, actually the first law firm that I worked at, I was trying, it was a rape of an unconscious victim situation. My clients and the um, victim used to date for two years. They broke up. They still lived in the same apartment complex. She has a new boyfriend. They all get drunk, like independently. She invites my client to her apartment at 1am. I guess she had had a fight with her boyfriend, if I recall correctly. She claims that she passes out and my client has sex with her. So I pin her down on the timing of it. So, you know, on cross-examination during my pre- the preliminary hearing testimony in Pennsylvania, we have prelims. And she insisted, she was so crystal clear. It was at this exact time, which was great for me because I got the phone records of her. So I subpoenaed her phone records that showed she was making phone calls. She was sending text messages, listening to her voicemail, et cetera. And the detectives never got that. So part of my theory was lack of investigation. So who better to keep on your jury than a FBI member, right? An FBI agent. So I'm picking the jury and I had a, a law student that was able to sit with me. It was really cool. Like she helped me pick the jury, which I would have loved to do in law school, by the way. So she and I were like, man, I'm so torn on this guy. Cause he's, first of all, he's good looking eye candy. Who doesn't like that? But I'm like, you know, he's talking to everybody around him. Super friendly. We asked repeatedly out loud, you know, are you more likely to believe a police officer? And he's like, no, no, no. And, and, you know, we pulled him up for individual voir dire to see if he, um, if it would be held against my client, et cetera. And I was like, I, I feel like this is crazy, but my gut instinct is saying keep. So I kept, so after a couple of days of the voir dire, he was not stricken. He was on the jury. panel. So I, we picked on a Friday, like finalized it on a Friday. I go back to my office to go get all my crap to work on over the weekend one of my law partners calls me into his office, shuts the door behind me. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, am I allowed to curse on here? Yes. Yes. you are. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? He's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you kept an FBI agent on. I was like, I didn't tell you that. He's like, no, the entire district attorney's office is talking about you and that you don't know what the hell you're doing. And I was like, oh God. 
so the whole weekend I'm like second guessing myself. What did I do? I'm going to, you know, my client's going to get found guilty and I'm an idiot. So long story short, my client was found not guilty. And then I wanted to better my practice. So I called him after the trial was over to see if. Okay. I just want everyone to know who is not (laughs) watching this on YouTube that she did the finger quote thing for better her practice. (laughs) Let the record reflect. Yes. You're a very good court reporter. Thank you, Christina. Um, so one thing led to another, I, I said, can you lunch? We ended up having drinks and now we're married 11 years later. So 11 years married. So I love tough. this story. I feel like it's the beginning of a novel and I hope it ends well. Can you tell us now where, were you like checking him out every day when you were doing your trial? <laughs> you know, the irony is there was, a, sometimes we have to use our benefits and our assets to our client's benefit, right? So I'm six feet tall without heels. Really? And I am. Nobody can figure that out oh. on Zoom. That's why I have to say it out loud. Yeah, I'm a giant. I'm like a not so gentle giant. So there was a guy on the jury panel that actually was like staring at my legs nonstop. So I wasn't necessarily eye flirting with Chris. I was actually putting all of that nonverbal to this other guy who I knew wasn't listening to anything. But I mean, reading the jury is a whole different topic too. Cause yeah, no, I didn't really like flirt with him or anything and I didn't do anything unethical and unethical cause I wouldn't, but yeah, every time I tell that story, people are like, he was a juror. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Out. I have to ask though, how tall is he? Six, five. I was going to say like, if you said like five, four, that would be really funny. Six, <laughs> five. Wow. Wow. So you found somebody cute with an awesome job and tall. I could see right? why you had to call him. And I got a good fee and I'm not guilty. Like, I feel like that was the trifecta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the universe was point was putting all arrows this way. Call this guy. No, it was definitely unexpected. That's for sure. I mean, who dates jurors? It just kind of happened. Yeah. Well, I can ask you this question. I always hear attorneys say that they don't, that basically they think the jurors are, are dumb. Oh my God. No, they're so smart. No. Do you want me to expand on that? Yeah, I do. And I'm not saying I think that for the record. Well, okay. Here's the deal. It's not that. So I teach my student, my law students to speak simply, not because the jury's dumb. But because we go to three years of law school to learn all this crazy Latin that nobody in real world speaks, right? Like, I I don't even understand some of the words still. And I have to, like, Google these stupid Latin legal words. So, you know, why should a juror know that? That's not because they're dumb that I want people to speak normally. It's just that I want to speak in terms that people are going to understand. I think jurors are so perceptive. And they pick up on things that I'm like, damn, I didn't even think about that. So even besides my husband's case, like I do try to talk to as many jurors as possible after every trial so that I can learn, like, even if I lost, like, why, what, what was it? Like, what did you not believe? What did you think? Why did you find him guilty or her guilty? So they pick up on the craziest things and what they really hate from what talking to them is when we go to sidebar and that's when they, that's when they start paying attention more. Because they're like, what are they talking about? They were like, I knew something was hidden, but I I still couldn't find him guilty because it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But there was something going on because you guys were up there for a while. Do they ever judge 
a case by whether they simply just like the attorneys or like the defendant? You know, sure I, they'd admit that, but well, and I, they haven't said that verbatim to me, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Right. So I'll, I'll give you another rape case, rape of a child case example. Um, I had, I was going to strike this one juror. I for sure thought she was going to hate my client. Right. She's an older woman, older, more mature, seasoned, seasoned, seasoned woman. And I thought she was going to be the end of me because I thought she was looking at us really bad. You can see it immediately during voir dire when the, when the judge says, and here we have the defendant so-and-so charged with rape of a child. It's like, oh, I hate that moment because everybody's next whip and they give an evil eye to my client. And so from then on, it's like, even during voir dire, I have to dispel that and get rid of that. I wasn't sure I got rid of it with her, but this woman ended up being like my client's grandmother and was like, I could not let that poor sweet man ever go to jail for something like this. And I was like, whew, read that one wrong, Gordon Broadier. She was the four person. Totally didn't see that coming. But yeah, I, I mean, I, the way she described him, it was more like she just really liked him. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can never remove the human nature aspect of it, right? We're all humans. We make judgments about people in a split second, just when we lay eyes on them. And I think it's hard to actually, from what I've read, it's actually hard once you make that judgment to change it. So you're dealing with a lot when you're dealing with the jurors because they're all different people. Yeah. So it's not like it's the same person. Yeah, no. And I mean, we even come in, even us as attorneys, like we all have even our implicit biases. Like I do fun exercises with my law students just to point out, like, it's not that it's a bad, it's not that I'm calling people racist or intentionally assholes, but we all walk into a courtroom or any situation with our preconceived notions. It is what it is. Absolutely. Um, and, And it is hard to change somebody's preconceived notions. So do you feel like you've gotten better at reading the jurors as you've evolved in your career? I mean, ironically, the last trial was that one where I totally misread the grandma juror. So, you know, I, I think so. And I think I've gotten better at communicating with them, even not during a speech. So we all think of the opportunity as during opening and closing, but you have chances to during direct and cross. And I know it sounds strange, but like, if I glance over and I see that juror number four is sleeping, I'm going to do something, right? Like I got to get his attention because he's got to pay attention to it. Or if I see that somebody is like making a face and they don't understand, I need to make sure that I clarify it. So like I've learned, I think, to be more comfortable, even communicate, not, not verbally communicating with them when not giving it argument or an opening, um, but even non-verbally communicating and reading them during examination of witnesses. Do you think that there are people, whether they're lawyers or in some other profession or psychic or whatever you want to call them, that are just have just have an uncanny ability to pick a jury? Because you see on legal shows and I'm sorry that I'm as a lawyer myself, I'm mentioning television, but you always see the legal shows. They'll have some jury expert will come on and advise the attorneys how to pick the jury. Is that really a thing? Do people do that? Oh, people pay a fortune for that. And there's, what does it show? It's like bull or something. Like I haven't ever actually watched it. Somebody told me that I should. Um, but I feel like it would be bull if I ever watched it. Like, I don't know if I could actually stomach it. So people pay a ton of money for jury consultants. I will say 
I, you know, there's a bunch of different things that people, that litigators can do, right? You can get a jury focus group, for example, beforehand and identify who your ideal juror is. So, you know, give facts to a random mix of 50 people with a different background, different careers, different genders, ages, et cetera, and find who, who's going to find for you and who's going to find against you so that you know when you're doing your voir dire that you should actually strike or try to keep any of those people and, and find your ideal juror. Now, to me, it, it's like stereotyping to it the nth degree, right? Because even if I have this jury consultant and they can also do like social media searches during the voir dire, figure out what their past is, et cetera, you know, just because I've thought one way in the past and I put it on Instagram or something, does that necessarily mean I'm going to find one way in a courtroom? So I wish that there was a lie detector test or something you could give to jurors. I don't know if there is any magic to it, but there are certain things that you can do to up your up the ante and up your chances of winning. I've never used one. Have you ever been a juror? I wish. Have you? I was, but I was selected as an alternate and it was before law school. Oh, okay. So now you probably would be stricken. Yeah, I probably would be. But at that time, it's funny that that time I didn't really mind that I was picked. I don't remember why, what was going on in my life at the time, but I was perfectly happy to miss work and I don't, I wasn't making a lot of money anyway. So the $5 a day they were going to give me was fine, but it's oddly enough. It was the defendant was an attorney who had misappropriated funds in his attorney trust account. So how did you find like, did what happened? Well, Well, you were the alternate. Yeah. I didn't get to deliberate. So, which I actually was kind of happy about because when the jury went in to deliberate, they sent out this list of things that they wanted. And it was the dumbest list I ever saw. Like I remember paper clips were on it and I was like, Oh, thank God. I'm not associated with that group. (laughs) But anyway, they did find him guilty. It didn't take long. It was an I wish that you had done the deliberation, though, because I think it would be fascinating. I was sorry to have been picked as an alternate. I would have liked to go in the room and be part of that experience. Yeah, I have a feeling. I mean, anytime they're going to hear you're an attorney and a successful one that you are, it's like that you're never going to get picked. So I just feel like that ship has sailed for me. Yeah, well, I was, it's kind of worked out because the subsequent times that I had to report for jury duty, they didn't pick me. And I was happy about it, but I would, I think it would be fun now, actually, now that I'm self-employed and I probably could make the time for that. I think it would be fun, but I don't think they would ever want me. Me neither. Yeah. Darn. (laughs) Bummer. So, um, I want to tell our audience that if they don't know already for the people that haven't been following, I, I don't want to even say the name because I feel like it's just gotten old and, and everyone's over it, but we met because of all of the attention around the Susan Smith Blakely article that was published in the APA journal. And I forget who reached out to who I think you reached out to me, whatever it was, we, we were talking about that and have done some other things on wake up call and on clubhouse to talk about it more. And I think at this point it's, it's that was published, what, at least maybe two months ago now, it's not really about Susan, you know, maybe I think she, unfortunately, I think she was attacked for that. So I don't really want to talk about Susan and her article and that what I really want to do, which I've expressed to you before is continue the dialogue 
about some of the issues that were raised in Susan's article. Like what, what do women still have to do to advance in the legal profession? And that's not to suggest that we haven't, we have, but I do think it's a little dangerous to just assume that, you know, we're done, that this is it. We're equal. There's nothing more for us to do. So what do you think about that? I have all the thoughts. Okay. So first of all, as I said multiple times, thank you so much for having me on. I, I heard your podcast with Susan and I was like, oh my God, I have to meet this woman and I have to have be on her show. So I like begs and, and pleaded my way on. So thank you. <laughs> um, I, I was, I was upset and sad candidly at how defensive Susan was about it, because I don't think that many of us that have spoken out against the article at least I can say for myself, I did not mean anything that I wrote publicly or anywhere as a personal attack against her. It was an attack against some of what I considered to be the outdated viewpoints that were in that initial article. And then to then subsequent, I think to your podcast, she had written a blog, which she has now deleted and it's no longer up there, you know, calling a lot of us you know, mean girls and saying that we're afraid and we hide behind social media I mean, anything to the contrary, like LinkedIn, hello, I think my phone number and I hope my home address isn't on there, but I actually think it might be like, I don't even know, but I'm hiding behind nothing, right? Like, I think many of us were very much open and honest about how we felt about it. So that being said, some of what she said was 100% accurate, right? And I, and I think that the message she was trying to get across had it had a different tone and a different delivery would have resonated a lot better with us as women lawyers. Um, but I think that the problem is not necessarily us as women and what we need to do, but the systemic issues that are happening. Um, you know, the fact that men are paid more, for example, we shouldn't have to go in and have our tail between our legs and ask to be paid the same amount as someone that has similar experience. Like the fact that some firms do that and, and, automatically start a woman out at a lower rate, that's not our fault. Now, should we self-advocate? Absolutely. Should we go in and try to ask for that raise? Sure. But I don't know if we need to be in that position to begin with. And then, sorry, you wanted to... Well, I was going to say, I think that the research that I've seen says, suggests that women don't ask. But I think you're right. If we didn't, we didn't, shouldn't have to ask, we should be getting the same pay. But I think also I've seen in studies that men will ask for a raise more readily or a promotion more readily and than women. And I'm generalizing. That's what I've read in various studies. No, and, and I think you're right. But I do think, like I said, from the get-go, like shame on any employer for feeling comfortable enough to offer women a lesser pay than the counterpoint part that's male. Just be, you know, it may not even be an intentional, oh, it's because she's a woman. But my biggest concern about that published article was how many of these old school thinking men are reading this and feeling vindicated and feeling like, so it's right. What I was, the reason why I didn't promote Susie was because she was pregnant and I just read this article and I was right. And I shouldn't have because she loses focus and she can't necessarily be a team player. Like even if that wasn't the intent behind it, and I have no doubt that that was not the intent, okay? The concern for me was you have this national organization that's supposed to kind of be the hub of us as attorneys, the American Bar Association, publishing it, and it came across as sponsoring that mentality. 
And so how much damage did that do implicitly? Well, I want to talk about the ABA journal because I feel like they stole cookies from the cookie jar and then, you know, just slunk away. I'm not sure if that's a word, but they slunk away and Susan was left holding the bag and getting pummeled for it. Yeah. And because let's not forget, they published it. And I know that they've been very vocal about, oh, well, this was Susan's article and she wrote it and and these were her thoughts, not ours. And but you published it and you did nothing after you did nothing afterwards, except for, you know, hang Susan out to dry or whatever. So I believe what she said, and you can correct me certainly if I'm wrong during your podcast was that there were multiple people that edit it, including a woman who was an editor. But she also mentioned that, that there were minimal red lines. So I don't know if it got through because somebody wasn't paying attention or we've all got 6 million things on our plate or if it got through intentionally that way. I have no idea. I think that the ABA journal, when publishing a piece like that, should have from the get-go included that editorial you know, paragraph that exists now and it wouldn't have been as much of an uproar, right? Number one. The Number disclaimer. two. Yeah, the disclaimer, it's fine. I mean, opinion pieces are good. We don't want to censor anybody, you know, speak up. We want to hear what you have to say, but don't make it seem like it is being, you know, the ABA does so many studies and everything that they put out there. If it's not put with that disclaimer, then we all, as the audience, perceive it to be as like, this is fact, which it, it clearly it wasn't. So I think before publishing it, that was just silly. And then afterwards, here you have, how many women have you met from this, Christina? I feel like hundreds, thousands, tons, tons. All of these people being vocal, vocal and speaking their truths and wanting their voices heard, wanting their narratives heard. They could have done so much with that moment. They could, the ABA Journal could have said, you know what? We're going to do an open forum that anybody can be published in. Please share your narrative. Let's collect these pieces. Let's hear everybody's voice. Let's use this as momentum to continue to fight for women's rights. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They could have. The, instead, their narrative is, well, we didn't write that. It's not a reflection on us. We're, we're behind you, women. We have been all along. We get you. But that's not true. They don't get us or they don't get you because if they did, they wouldn't have published that in the first place. And I don't think that the excuse that it well, it was Susan's opinion flies, at least not for me, because if Susan had written something racially inappropriate, uh-huh. they wouldn't have published that. No, they have the discretion what they're going to post. And they, well, I mean, hopefully they wouldn't publish that. I think you're giving them a lot of the benefits. (laughs) Like I have no benefits if you've been left. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I, and I think that, you know, the mere fact that it was published was super problematic. What I've learned though, is that they are a branch of many. So I don't think I understood when I first read the ABA journal article that that is supposedly an independent branch of like the bigger ABA, right? And there's there are still really good organizations within the ABA doing amazing studies, doing amazing things. But candidly, they've lost credibility for me. Like I, I just don't understand how hard it would be for the ABA Journal to address it head on. Like how stupid they missed yeah, the mark. I, I think the way they should have handled it is just said, you know what, we got it wrong we got it wrong. That's it. We apologize to you and let's, let's do better. 
help us do better. Let's and how serve hard you better. Would that be? How hard would that be to say? Yeah, I don't understand I, it. I would have got had so much more respect for you know the powers that be at the ABA and the ABA Journal, and you can't separate them. I you don't know? think you can either. I mean, even though they are independent branches, the public perception, I don't think, I, I, I mean, they're part of the same organization. If somebody under me that, you know, if one of my associates does something in court, it reflects on me. I can't say, oh, they're independent. They're just an associate. Like, come on. That's yeah. somebody intentionally hired that's representing my law firm. Yeah, we all know that attorney that blames their paralegal for something, right? <laughs> oh, I hate them. Stop. Just stop. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So that's our message to the ABA journal. Don't be that attorney that blames the paralegal, right? Yes. Or to the ABA. Don't, don't be that lawyer. So I'm kind of wondering, though, you know, I think the issues that women still have to you know, feel equal, if that's the right word in the profession is really, it's more covert than it used to be. You know, it's not just like, okay, well, I can have children and have a job. I can be more than the secretary. It's gone so far beyond that. And I think it's sometimes it can be really hard to identify and also hard to come up with solutions. So I'm, as a woman myself, I'm kind of having a hard time identifying what are the things that we still have to work on. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah. So especially because I've been teaching trial advocacy for umpteen years, right? And my company um, even created this for women by women training. So it is women-led trial advocacy instructors, teaching primarily women attendees, men are welcome. We can't discriminate against men, um, but no man has come yet. So what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing with some of the statistics is particularly in big law, right? Christina, like you have your own practice, but if you're in big law, the chance of being in the courtroom and having a crucial role in a trial are significantly less for women than they are for men. I don't have the exact statistics, so please don't quote me on any of these, but I know that the numbers show, for example, I would not, I would be second chair instead of first chair. And so that, I mean, it may be covert and it may be a matter of us not speaking up for ourselves and asking for those things because of our own insecurities. But again, if my male counterpart has had just as much trial experience as I have, why isn't the partner asking me to do the opening as opposed to him or me to do that important director cross-examination? Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit spoiled because I'm in private practice and I've had my own firm since 2013. So I'm the boss. I decide what I do, what I don't do, how much I get paid, right? Like how much work I put into it. So I think I have the luxury of having more autonomy and not seeing those things that are happening at large firms, at, at small firms where you're an associate, or if you're in-house counsel somewhere, if you're in, working for a gov government entity, I'm not seeing those things. So I would like, and for those listening, I, I really would like to see us uh, have more of a dialogue for women in these different areas to talk about what they're seeing. Unfortunately, I think what does happen a lot is people don't want to speak out about it because they have to be public and their employer will hear them or see them wherever they're expressing this. So I, I wish RBG was here. 
you know, she, I mean, I would love to just stand. I, I did meet her. So she did the, um, oh, I know. I know. So, so short, so short. So I'm standing next to her in the hallway. I'm like, does anybody have a picture? Like a camera, please get somebody. Cause I'm wearing my heels. She's like coming up to my stomach. Um, cutest woman. Oh my God. She was the best, you know? So she did one of the keynote addresses for American university law school's new building. It was so cool. She was so down to earth, taking pictures with law students left and right. You know, they're all wearing their RBG shirts and notorious RBG. Um, but what a good spirit. And she was such a legend in our legal system. And I think she would have been appalled by this too. I, she really got it. She just really got it. You know, she, she just saw things on such a different level than most people that we, we still need her. We need people like her. I mean, I'm trying to pay attention to these issues and, and speak about them because that's the only way that we're really going to recognize them and change them as we move forward. But I certainly don't think that I'm the visionary. I mean, I don't even come close to RBG. So I'm, I'm open to hearing suggestions from other people and other leaders about what we still need to do and what we need to pay attention to moving forward. I'm not sure that it's the ABA or the ABA journal that will be doing it, but we'll see. We'll give them a chance. We've given them a chance, darling. What I hope though happens, you know, with, with time that we don't become complacent again. Right. Like I almost wanted to send, I joked in one of my posts that I was like, can I send a thank you card? Because Honestly, this has created conversation that has been so long overdue and has created much more of a community with a lot of women. So to me, you know, maybe it did some implicit damage somewhere. Right. But I was just like, thank God, you just riled up a group of women that are not going to stay silent anymore. And we are going to speak up and the fear of retaliation. I don't care anymore. I think that what we need to do is we just need to have all women owned businesses. Yes, but I always say we're not going to be able to change the system until we include the system, right? So like us having this conversation, it's going to be great. It's going to resonate with all the women, hopefully. I don't say anything too offensive. But what we need is a man to hear this and think, yeah, this isn't right. This isn't cool. So that they can start making sure that other men also see it's not right. It's not cool. Um, Because the right mouthpiece sends the right message. I agree with that. And I, I do think that there are men, I don't want to lump men all into the same category, but there are a lot of men that, um, you know, give women opportunities and, and recognize us the way that we're asking them to. I feel like what happens a lot, I call them the dinosaurs, like the old farts that are just still lingering that, you know, haven't retired and, and moved on yet. They're, they're still there, but it's not just that. It's what are they teaching the younger generations too? because they're modeling behavior. And it's also, you know, it'll be interesting to see like how things are in 30 or 40 years. I hope I'm still around because the boys that are being raised now and the girls that are being raised now, they have a really different perception of life. You know, my goddaughter is eight and it's just interesting. She recognizes, uh, you know, gay couples and they don't understand that there was a time when boys and girls couldn't marry each other. That was only a boy and a girl that could get married. They don't even comprehend that. 
So their understanding of the world as they accept it is so different. And it'll be really interesting to see how life is when they're working. Well, I mean, just look at Kamala, right? I mean, my daughter is, was six when she was elected, right? Yes, six. Yeah, six. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm in tears when they announced it. Just crying, like I was so proud and so happy. I mean, I don't know her, but like the fact that a woman is now in that position of power meant so much to me. And then my daughter at six is going to be able to see that. And she's going to think that that's the norm. And that's pretty freaking cool. That's right. And it's not just her, but boys will see that as the norm, the norm too. So I think they it's question it. Like my son, Julius doesn't question it. Like, why is a woman the VP? It's like, they don't know better. I get yeah. to teach them that this is normal. This is just the way that it is. And they don't question it. So it really depends a lot on what, what is being told to you? You know, how are your parents? Cause if your parents are saying, oh my God, these women and the worst thing that ever happened is they let women go to work or you know, whatever, something like that. If they're hearing things like that, then that's how that perpetuates. For sure. No. And I, I, I think similar, you know, racism is taught too. I don't think kids see any, they don't understand it until they're taught it somewhere. That's exactly right. And, you know, we, I think we have the luxury of being in an area that's more, um, progressive. Like if you live in the Midwest, I hope I don't get killed by anybody who's living in the Midwest, but it's just different. It's just a different way of life. You know, it's not, you just see, I think you see more of that in maybe rural areas, places that are a little less sophisticated. Yeah. No comment. So, I know. I know. I know. Look, you can't, you can't talk about these subjects without offending somebody. No, I don't think it was offensive. I just, I would choose not to live in a rural area because probably in large part because of that. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, this is because really it just happens, but you mentioned me too. And I did want to get your opinion about that, but what do you think about governor Cuomo? And that Uh, I haven't really been following everything as much as I should be. Isn't that terrible? I'm like under a rock. Um, so all of these accusations, and then he resigns. Catch me up more, and I'm happy to give feedback. Well, apparently there are at least 12 or 13 female staffers that have talked about the toxic work environment and things that he would say that were just totally inappropriate about women or, you know, or to them specifically. And I'm trying to think of some specific examples that like what he would say, apparently there was one woman that said that he kissed her, that he would just make comments about women's bodies. And, and it was just normal. It, it was just, but I feel like it's always been just normal. So like, you know, this is a situation where people are finally coming out, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, but how many times have you had to deal with something like that? It's commonplace. It really is. And I think that's what upsets me so much. I'm when I was younger, I did not question it as much as I do now as a, and um, I don't want to say older woman. I just don't like the sound of that, but you know what I mean? As a more mature woman, when I was in my twenties, I just sat normal. Yes. I just thought, well, that's just how it is you know what, that's just what men do. And this, we just have to deal with it. And I have been in in different jobs where I felt uncomfortable because there was a male in the environment that 
um, was saying and doing things that weren't appropriate. But it never occurred to me to to do anything about it. I just thought, well, this is how it is. I guess I'm just going to have to avoid him as much as possible. But it's isn't it a damn shame that we've had to do that for so long? But I'm going to circle back to exactly what you just said, right? Like if if the this generation, right, and and these women that are coming forward, I think are probably younger than me, maybe not you, but me, um, maybe they have been taught at a younger age, instead of us having to live through it and learn it, that it's not right. Right. So like you and I put up with the crap, whereas the younger generation now not putting up with that crap. And hopefully that's going to continue to happen. Um, you know, with people growing up and being taught that it's not okay to be sexually assaulted or verbally harassed by somebody that you work with just because they're in a position of power. Yeah. And, and um, I think what was particularly interesting about Cuomo is you have to find it, his resignation. He basically doesn't take any responsibility. He basically says that, well, he didn't know that the line of what's acceptable had been redrawn. Oh, God. So to me, that's like saying, oh, well, I've been sexually harassing people for years and it was always okay. I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to be doing that anymore. Really? Yeah, that's, hold on. Are there criminal charges pending? I think there's an investigation. So it will be interesting to see what happens. And I'm surprised he even said that, to be honest, because I probably just would have kept my mouth shut and not said anything if I were him. Well, I thought maybe that was the reason that he didn't apologize because he's not acknowledging that he's done anything wrong. Well, no, he just said that I did it, but I didn't cross the line and I didn't know where the line was drawn. Like that can be construed very much as an admission. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I, I am summarizing what he said. And for anybody who didn't actually see it, you should just, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Just find the actual clip from him doing the press conference where he was resigning that was just astounding to me. And, you know, it's, it is really sad to see somebody and and it's not just him. There's been a long line of people like him who are, are bright and, you know, had brilliant political careers and did a lot of good things and, and had something to contribute, but their career is now tainted or completely destroyed because honestly, they just couldn't keep their brain out of their penis. It's true, but I don't feel bad for them because the only person they have to blame is themselves. It's like, you know, yeah, you did some great stuff during COVID, Cuomo, and yeah, you had a great response to everything. That doesn't excuse bad behavior behind closed doors. Yeah, and, and just imagine the shame of just shaming your family. He's got children. Uh, was it really worth it to see you know, somebody unless it didn't happen. And look, here comes the criminal defense attorney and me coming out and seeing that it's just that I have a hard time believing it. I guess I'm yeah. not him. <laughs> what is it about that, that we so readily believe it when the accusations are made? Because I've worked with politicians before. Right. Yeah. I mean, somebody, <laughs> a friend of mine did bring that up to me, not a lawyer. She was asking, you know, why is it that people can just make accusations now? And just because there's 12 of them that we believe it. I mean, the, 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 there's the jury trial in a legal courtroom, and then there's the jury trial in the public forum, right? Like the public trial. And I think people are more likely to believe accusations than they are to believe the denials. And, and it's actually the terrifying 
effect, I think, of some of the accusations that come about, because all it really does take is pointing a finger at an individual and then they're charged criminally and they get the scarlet letter on them. So, you know, another reason why I would tell Justin, you don't want that scarlet letter because the moment that somebody points the finger at you and accuses you of this, like your reputation is tarnished. But I think there's something different about a political accusation just because a lot of it does happen. I mean, at least for me, that's why I kind of tend to believe it as opposed to not believe it. Yeah, me too. We're, We're being judgy. I don't know. Maybe we're just judgy. I don't know. I think a lot of us women, we just know what our own experience in the world. And I, I can't imagine you'd find any woman who hasn't experienced even a, a tiny bit of sexual harassment or, or some inappropriate behavior in the workplace. Well, and again, it might be like a definition of where that line is, what is inappropriate and what isn't, does it include, does it have to include touching or can it be just the comments? You know, what, where is that line? At the same time though, I feel like we do have to, I feel like I have to point out and acknowledge that it's not just men doing it. You know, I've worked at places where we had very casual conversation about the issues we probably shouldn't have been talking about at work. And it was, it, it, we were all joking. Everybody thought it was funny. That was just the climate and nobody really had a problem with it. So we probably need to be a little careful too, but I don't think that's an issue that we're going to resolve today. We could talk another hour about that. Oh one. My God, I know. <laughs> Thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. It has. And, but I do want to end it with a question. What, what's your vision for the future? I mean, you've already wearing three hats. You have three jobs. (laughs) What, where do you see yourself? Like what's, what do you want to do? And what's your five-year plan? Oh, five. I was hoping you would go with like 10. No, okay, um, let's do 10. No. So I want to retire young. So that's kind of why I'm like willing to put in the time and energy now. I say it, but I guarantee you I'm not going to fully ever quit or resign. So my husband can, because the FBI is amazing with benefits, he can retire in five years. So, I mean, he retires at, he'll be 50 by the time he's 50. If I can retire by the time my little kids are hitting college, I want to go live on a sailboat somewhere. That's my, that's my like 10 year plan. So, but they're only six. So 12 year plan. Um, so for, I intend to keep doing what I'm doing. I love everything that I do. And I don't like, even though everybody says it sounds like a lot, every aspect of my jobs I love and I'm passionate about. So I don't really feel that kind of overwhelmed or overworked, although certain times for sure, but I'm very intentional with my time and I intend to continue that way. I love that. Do you know how to sail? My husband does. I'm really good at drinking boat drinks. <laughs> Actually, now I'm remembering you were on a boat when you, when I heard your podcast and I was like, I have to come on. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. You're very good for my ego. I think you probably were drunk too. When you sent that email. No, never, never. I'm very happy to have met you. And it's, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship for sure. Thank you. All right. So how, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they're interested in talking to you more? Yeah. So I, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at tact lawyer, T-A-C-T-L-A-W-Y-E-R. And you can f- connect with me on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Lippy, And my email address is elippy 
at tactlawyer.com. And I'm open and welcome anybody to just reach out whenever. I always love talking to people. Good. Well, we will continue the dialogue and I'll have links to everything in the show notes. So thank you for listening or watching. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, audience. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.